I think that you can do really beautiful, amazing, um, complex yoga postures and still experience your subtle body. It doesn't have to be separate. Hello, yogis, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Dharma Talk. I'm your host, Henry Winslow, and this is episode number 54. Before we get into the show, I want to make a big shout out and give thanks to my friend Stefan Lineweaver for making a donation to support the show. Every dollar counts, and I appreciate each and every one of your donations. It means the world to me and lets me know that I'm doing something that you all value. So if anyone else would like to make a donation, you can always do that at dharmatalk.show or henrywins.com. Now about today's interview. This week, I interviewed Sarah Plattfinger. Sarah is a highly esteemed yoga teacher based in New York with quite the resume. She's the co-founder of Ishta Yoga and the private yoga teacher of Deepak Chopra. And how do you get to be the yoga teacher of someone like Deepak Chopra, someone so uh, highly sought after and respected in the spiritual community? Well, Sarah has a true deep understanding of what yoga can do for you as a healing mechanism, and as a path to understanding the self. In this episode, we talk about what Ishta Yoga is all about, the integrated science of Hatha, Tantra, and Ayurveda. And we talk about approaching these three practices or these families of practices from a scientific lens, eschewing dogma in favor of results. We also talk about what it means to inhabit a yoga posture, and how connecting to energy can get you out of your head and simplify things. We talk about expanding the reach of yoga to traumatize women, some of the work that she's doing with the nonprofit organization for which she serves as board chair. And lastly, we talk about why Sarah made the shift from teaching to sharing these practices and a few things that she's learned from her time with Deepak Chopra. All of that is coming up very soon. Please just stay tuned through these announcements and we'll dive into my interview with Sarah Plattfinger. Hey, Dharma Talk community, here's what's coming up in my world. This weekend, I'll be teaching at Original Hot Yoga 305 in Miami, Florida. I'm going there with my wife, Veronica, and we're leading a weekend immersion. Following weekend, April 12th through 14th, I'm going to Athens, Georgia to teach at Fuel Hot Yoga. And then this is a ways off, but in October, October 25th through 27th, Veronica and I are headed down to Bucerias, Mexico to teach for a weekend at Shala Ananda Yoga. It's going to be a beautiful place, beautiful weekend, and we would love for anyone who wants to join to come along with us. The details for all of these workshops, these weekends are at henrywins.com events. So go there and sign up. What's your purpose? What's your vision? What mark will you leave on this planet long after you're gone? I'm Henry Winslow, and you're listening to Dharma Talk, the only podcast where I interview inspirational yogis on how they're changing the world in their own unique ways. Whether you're still searching for your purpose or already walking the path, I hope these stories get you excited to live your dharma. Hello, Dharma Talk community, and welcome back to another episode. 
Today, I have Sarah Platfinger on the line. Sarah is the co-founder of Ishta Yoga and the private yoga teacher of Deepak Chopra. She is one of the most sought-after teachers in New York City and has created one of the most highly respected teacher training programs in the industry. Sarah also leads trainings and workshops internationally. She is a legacy ambassador for Lululemon and the board chair for Exhale to Inhale, a nonprofit organization that teaches yoga to survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. Sarah, it's my pleasure to have you on Dharma Talk this morning. How are you? Thank you so much. I'm great. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, we always start with the same first question, so I'd love to just dive straight into that. What does the word dharma mean to you? And what is your dharma as you understand it today? It's such a good question, right? Because dharma is something I think that makes each of us really unique and individual. Um, it's what reminds us that we are all here for a purpose. We all have something to share. I like to think of dharma and karma as sort of um, coming together. We think about what we're born into um, and, you know, how we're born into in this world. Uh, we all have like a certain deal of cards that we're given, right? A hand of cards and that we cannot control. That's our karma. But then how we choose to play those cards, how we choose to work with the uh, hand that we're dealt, that is our dharma. So our dharma can be something that is also very much within our power to, um, to take action upon and to um, elevate in, in our own life. And for me, I guess uh, my dharma is certainly to share and um, communicate the teachings of Ishta Yoga, which is the the style and methodology of yoga that I share. And um, I feel that it's a very accessible practice that it maintains the authenticity of the practice of yoga. Um, I feel that there's a lot of people that are in need of connecting to their true essence. And when I share these teachings, and I say share because it's not really like for me that I'm teaching people, but I'm just sharing this knowledge and this wisdom that I have integrated and that has changed and affected and impacted my life so profoundly. Um, I want, I just have the desire for other people to experience that and to feel um, the same sense of connection and contact with the part of themselves that is unchanging and that is eternal. And once you kind of get a glimpse of that and you get a feel and a taste of that, it becomes your duty to share it. It's like you, you almost don't have the option to hoard it for yourself. You know, like I feel this um, deep driving desire to share these teachings. So I would, I think that is my Dharma. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to kind of go back to this concept or uh, a framework that you look at karma and Dharma. I really liked that karma is something that we cannot control and Dharma is our response. And that's mm. really all that we have. It kind of reminds me of that, that famous serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change 
the courage to change the things that I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Mm, and, and, yeah. and I believe that wisdom is something that we cultivate through yoga practice. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think because the yoga practice is so much about, um, taking action and there's a lot in the practice that involves us being conscious in our choices and how we choose to organize our body and experience the present moment. Yeah, there is a lot of that in the practice. Mm -hmm. You spoke also on, um, this idea of connecting to what is permanent about the self. And this Mm. is something that is very important to me in my practice and, as a motivator in a, in a way to, to continue on the path is ultimately if you take away all of the intermediary benefits, the, you know, the relief from the pains and aches in the body and even the pains and aches in the mind, the emotional suffering underneath all of that, this is what yoga practice is all about. Mm. So I'd love for you to kind of talk a little bit about what makes the practice at Ishta or the sort of teaching that you do uniquely, um, in pursuit of that? Mm. Yeah. Well, I guess I should break down a little bit the, the meaning of Ishta and Ishta is an acronym. It's kind of a mouthful, but, um, if you've heard of some of these sciences before, it might make sense for you. So it's the integrated science of Hatha Tantra and Ayurveda and Hatha Tantra and Ayurveda are kind of the sister sciences of yoga. And, um, this practice is this integration of these three experiences. So understanding our physical body, it's the Hatha practice, right? Balancing the solar and lunar energies, the part of you that is more tight and tense with the part of you that is more open and supple and being able to create harmony in the body in that way. Um, Tantra, which is a non-dualistic science that sees this, material world, like everything that we experience through our senses as an expression or a manifestation of pure consciousness of this unified field of um, intelligence that we are all a part of. And then Ayurveda being the traditional Indian science um, of life, which sees the individual self as this combination of the five main elements. And when we balance those elements within us and, and find a sense of harmony and balance with the elements outside of us, we come into our alignment and really our, our, our life's purpose as well. So integrating these three sciences enables us to look at the self as more than simply a physical expression, right? But behind that physical expression is our densities of energies. And as we get more in touch with our physical body, and this is why I love Tantra particularly, is because there's this celebration of the physical body. And once we really get in contact with that and understand that intimately, we can connect deeper and deeper inward to these subtler um, expressions or densities of energy, which is our subtle body, our causal body, and ultimately our spirit, right? The part of you that is unchanging. 
And there's specific practices. We, we're a very strong asana practice, but also um, breath and meditation techniques used as a science. And my husband, who created Ishta, really is, I like to think of him as a scientist because there is no belief system attached to it. There's no need. We don't, you know, subscribe to any particular way of dressing or eating or, um, you know, speaking, but really this science of connecting inward to your inner technology, which enables you to transcend this material realm and access that part of you that is unchanging. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and to your point about Tantra being sort of a celebration of the physical body, that almost seems counterintuitive, right? Because mm. if, if we're talking about Tantra being a ultimately a celebration of non-dualistic understanding of unified consciousness, it's tempting to say, to totally reject the body, right? And say that this right. is something superficial that doesn't even matter. How do you reconcile right. that? <laughs> yeah, I well, because if we think of really the body to me, and I, I think, you know, I can say this is a lot of what Tantra is teaching. If we look as look at the physical body as a, a gateway in, right, there's you, you cannot access that realm of intelligence without accessing the physical body. It's not outside of you. So anything that we do particularly in yoga, right? We are utilizing the physical body. And there's this great saying in Tantra that we use the floor to get up off the floor. We use the earth to get up off the earth, right? So I would not be able to stand up unless I pushed my feet down against the earth to lift up off of the chair. And it's the same thing with the physical body. In order to transcend the physical body we have to move through the physical body so it is here as this expression it's a different density right because the physical body we seemingly has form and shape and um you know it's more and, and is made of matter but we know more and more now from modern science that what is matter is predominantly space but um through the physical body, through that expression of what we could call consciousness, we're able to then transcend beyond what's, what are the limitations of the physical body. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And I, and I love that explanation. You know, we have to work with what we have. Yeah. And it, it reminds me of one of my friends and one of my teachers, Rose Aaron Vaughn. Um, she said, like, all the master teachers that I know don't care about physicality or yoga poses anymore, but they've mastered mm. them, right? So it's like mm. you have to go through that step in order to get to what's underneath it or beyond it or above it, however you want to look at it. Yeah, and I just want to add to that because <clears throat> I, I do see that there tends to be, especially in the, in the yoga world, there is this dichotomy between right what is the physical practice and what is this like more subtle body practice. And I like to celebrate both. Like I think that you can do really beautiful, amazing, um, complex yoga postures and still experience your subtle body. It doesn't have to be separate, 
right? Just in our minds, we've created it kind of as two separate schools. But that's what excites me is like, I want to do an inversion and experience this shift in energy. And, you know, I think we all do, but then what the difference is in Ishta is we kind of map it out from that subtle body perspective and then ultimately utilize that practice, the physical practice as a way or means to be able to sit and meditate for an extended period of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really smart and Mm. something that definitely resonates with me. I feel that, you know, you can get started with an asana practice and have no awareness at all of the movement of energy in the body. But right. if you want to get into some of these more demanding, challenging, kind of like spectacular yoga poses, it's impossible if you don't have awareness of how you're moving energy through. Yes. That, that is the that is the driving force after a certain point. Like you can yes. start talking about anatomy and pressing your heel bone down, but if you get to a point where you're trying to do something a little bit more technical than, you know, down dog or or whatever it is, you have to know where the energy, like what the directions of the energy are in the body and how to expand them and think in those terms rather than what my, you know, pubic bones are doing or what my shoulder blades are doing. Yeah. And getting out of your head about it, because once you understand the energy, you're, you're inhabiting the posture and it like, leads to sustainability. You're able to sustain it for an extended period of time. Creating that space inside of it is really what creates that, that potential for transformation. Yeah. Right. And in a way it's actually simpler too. Yeah, totally. (laughs) That's right. So I, I also want to talk to you a little bit about this idea of approaching this integrated, as you put it, integrated sciences of, mm. of Hatha, Tantra, and Ayurveda. When you say that it's science and make a point of rejecting dogma or um, ritual in a way that's prescriptive, mm. what, what does that mean to you and, and Alan? Is that about people trying things on and experimenting with what works for them or, mm. or something else? How do you interpret that? Yeah. So when we, we think of, when we say the word science, we mean, um, you know, less about, of course, when we think of science, we think of a laboratory and like we put on our lab coats and we have beakers and, you know, we're, we're trying all of these different methodologies. Um, and to a certain, there is something prescribed about the practice and that having that regularity, the sadhana, the, um, opportunity where you, do your practice and connect to something like a greater field of consciousness, that would be like a a more kind of ritualistic prescriptive that we might say like, yeah, do this every day, because if you do it every day, it it becomes your reality. But as far as these different sister sciences, um, we call it that because um, essentially you are utilizing these techniques um, or uh, tools, right, to serve, to yield a certain result. So we can say that we know when we take a full, complete breath that there are certain physiological responses that happen in the body. And it's the same thing with Ayurveda or Tantra or Hatha Yoga that, you know, we are utilizing these different techniques and tools and um, expressions 
to yield a certain result. And we know that if we apply it in a certain way, there will be a certain um, experience that comes from it. And the more that we can approach it in that way and not be dogmatic about it, um, then it, it kind of takes some of that, the, what's the word, the complication out of it. Sometimes with certainly meditation has gotten more and more over time, we can see that science is catching up with meditation and that different organizations and schools and hospitals are using it because they see it yields a certain result, right? Like the relaxation response is a documented response. Um, and I think we can see more and more in time that as we do these practices, um, without attaching any kind of value to it or judgment, we just sit on the mat and we, we do it, we can alter the way that we feel internally. And it's very, it's very powerful. Um, and, and it creates, I think the more that again, we, we approach it like that, it takes out some of the duality that sometimes gets created in our minds or in many spiritual circles that this is right and that is wrong and this is good and that is bad and this is should and that is shouldn't. But it's like, what is the result? What are we seeing that is created from this, um, technique or practice that we're doing mm -hmm. right yeah and that's that's tricky place to inhabit right because part uh, a deep part of yoga practice is also practicing with non-attachment to the result you know mm -hmm. the, the whole mm -hmm. abhyasa and vairagya mm -hmm. um, balance if mm -hmm. you will mm -hmm. but in modern life we we do want that result and i think it's kind of mm -hmm. impossible to totally reject um, attachment to a result. Otherwise you tend to lose a motivation. And even in true, you know, the most traditional sense of yoga practice with non-attachment to the result, you are still committed to your spiritual evolution or your spiritual yeah. growth. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, and if I don't you, have an answer for that, but it's just yeah, something no, to chew on. It's so true. And I think just to add to that, if, you know, if you look at the yoga sutras, the last three, um, Niyamas are tapas, um, svadhyaya, and ishvari pranidhani, which is tapas is that heat for transformation, right? And that heat is kind of the heat of austerity. It's the heat that keeps us going, the heat that keeps us driven, right? And on the mat and, you know, looking for those answers. And svadhyaya being this, but keeping the lens internal, self-study, keeping looking at yourself and understanding more and more about what our idiosyncrasies are and what makes us grow and what makes us get triggered. And then finally, Ishvari Pranidhani, which is surrender ultimately, like, so surrendering those results, but we can't surrender fully without having that, that ability to attach a level of heat or focus or concentration to the, to the present moment. They're so hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I like to think of those three kind of like, you need the self-discipline and you need the self-study. And then ultimately, like, that's your part. You have to do that. Yeah. yeah. But as limited, somewhat limited vessels, right? I mean, we have 
we have connection to unified consciousness and we, we all have, you know, God consciousness flowing through us. But as our individual self, we have certain limitations. And in order to get the maximum capacity of the universe, that's where you have to relinquish some of that control. Yes, totally. Yeah, I agree. Sarah, can you take us to kind of your origin story? How did you come into your your role? Like, where did you find the inspiration to start teaching and, and put together these these practices together? <clears throat> so I, um, gosh, where do I start? <laughs> like any, I suppose, anyone who... Um, practices yoga, we, we often come to this practice because we feel a sense of um, a desire to become whole, meaning we, we feel disconnected in, in some way. And um, I think I, my high school um, and sort of young adult life was a little tumultuous. I had my own share of um, issues and, and trauma. And I, after I graduated college, I wanted to go as far away as possible from where I lived, which was Long Island. <laughs> um, I went to college in Colorado. And then I, I had learned a little, studied a little bit in college about um, the Chinese meditative arts. I was a minor in Asian studies. And I was extremely uh, moved by the Eastern practices. I learned a little Qigong and Tai Chi. Um, I studied the Chinese language Mandarin. I learned calligraphy um, and just understanding how you could slow the mind down uh, through simple strokes with your hands or simple movements with your body was really profound to me. I had never been exposed to that. Um, I was a gymnast growing up. I was very, very hard on myself. My parents were church going people, um, not, not really strict religious, but that was very much a part of their community. And so, um, I had a strong desire to, to move out East. And so I, I lived in Taiwan for three years after I graduated college. Um, I wanted to learn the Mandarin language more. I wanted to immerse myself in this culture. Um, I was only supposed to go for one year, but it ended up being three. And it was there actually that I started studying yoga. It was kind of a different form of yoga than I practice now because there was a lot of the Qigong and Tai Chi influence. Uh, but because I had a background in dance and gymnastics, the teacher would put me in front of the room and have me teach in Mandarin. It was usually just counting from one to eight. Um, more like kind of calisthenically. And I, um, just something inside of me decided that I really needed to pursue this. It wasn't anything that was very, um, rational or that I really thought out. I'm a very sort of, um, feeling driven person. I, I can have impu make impulsive decisions, but that I, I like to think are coming from a higher place. Um, that's what drove me to go to move to Taiwan in the first place. Uh, and so I decided to come back. This was 2003. Um, and I, I felt very, it was like a, a calling really. And there's no other word I have for it. Um, 
I was getting insomnia when I was in Taiwan and having a really hard time being in my body. And I just felt called to come back to New York. And at the time I was living with my parents when I came back and there was a studio about five minutes away called Yoga Zone. And um, when I returned back from Taiwan, I had uh, this real reverse culture shock. Anyone who's ever lived overseas and then came back to their home might be able to relate to this where like your home doesn't feel like your home, but where you lived, you know, in that foreign place also felt very um, alienating. So coming home, I was just like, it was very challenging for me to readjust. And um, I started seeking out different yoga studios. I came to Yoga Zone. I took a class with um, Mary Jo Marchicello, who still teaches at ISHTA. And it was the first time that I felt at home. I just felt so at home in my body that it was just, I mean, I can still feel it now, like how it just felt like a glass of water when you're parched, you know? And she directed me to, I was like, what is this style of yoga? I need to learn more about it. Um, she directed me to Ishta, in, which was then Bi Yoga um, in Manhattan. And I pursued my 200 and my 300 hour teacher trainings and, um, and it kind of like let, eventually I kind of let go of my day jobs and I started teaching there. And I guess fast forward a couple of years, I found, um, I established a really strong connection with Alan, who is now my husband. Um, and this was the style of yoga that really he is the figurehead and sort of the guru of, um, for lack of a better word. But um, he he really um, developed the the methodology. And I felt and there was a, a pivotal time after I had been teaching there for a few years where uh, either Alan was going to leave, um, at the time, the, it's a little bit, uh, complex, the reiteration of the yoga life, but, um, the yoga had been bought out by yoga works and, um, and we found, you know, just sort of karmically as it was yoga works had a very strong mission to bring yoga to the masses. Um, and there was very little space for Ishta there because this was a really, this was a lineage and this was a really specific practice that involved, you know, breath work and meditation and had a teacher, a figurehead, Alan, and it didn't really fit in the paradigm of what they were sharing, um, which is understandable. Um, so there was this offer, this sort of, um, fork in the road for Alan, where he would either kind of fold it up and move down to Florida, which is always his default, like, he'll just move down to Florida, or <laughs> he could create a new home. And I like, had meditated on it. And I felt very strongly at that time, I was like, you cannot, this is not the end of Isha. You, you, we must create a new home. There's so many people who have been so affected by this. Um, and so we partnered with a, another couple and um, they helped to uh, subsidize the space. We moved into where the, the current studio is now on 11th Street. Um, 
in in Manhattan and in 2008 and we opened our own home and we just called it Ishta Yoga. Um, nothing else, no frills, like this is what you're going to get. Um, and that's what kind of over time, I, I didn't really want to become a business owner myself. I always just wanted to teach. I wanted to teach in the teacher training and help develop the teacher training, which I did. Um, but after three years of, um, of the studio's, uh, inception, uh, my former partner had resigned and went on to do her own, um, methodology. And I, this was like three months after my daughter was born and I found myself in the position of essentially taking over the running of the studio. Um, so there were a couple of moments in my life where I had these, these choices. And I guess this is where the Dharma comes back in, um, because I felt very called to step up and say, we need to create a home or step up and say, I will take over the running of the show. Um, and, and not really having any kind of, um, you know, back or like experience or anything to call upon in, in business to be able to do it. And I, I learned as I went along and it was a very humbling experience, but it's, I think a testament to the drive of spirit when spirit feels something really strongly, um, you know, you can make anything happen. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so true. And I love those examples. It almost, you know, maybe you didn't say this, so I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what mm -hmm. I heard from that was that the calling actually comes from a, a duty out of service to the people that almost like depend on it at that point. Because as you said, yes. you know, you didn't have the experience to draw from in running a business and quite honestly, like you didn't really have the desire to run a business either. Yeah. But yeah. you felt that certain people needed it and you had established kind of a precedent that people were, were using and relying on and didn't want to pull the rug out from underneath them. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's very true. And I think that there was something, you know, deeply within me that had the desire to do it or else I don't think I could have, you know, if I really didn't want to, I would have just like put my hands up and like, all right, well, we're going to Florida. Well, yeah. <laughs> Pack our bags down to Miami. But it was, no, it was like that voice inside was like, absolutely not. Like we are continuing with this. Yeah. And it was definitely a duty to the people. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's what it's all about. Yeah. Speaking of which, um, I mentioned in your introduction that you are on the board of a nonprofit called Exhale to Inhale. Talk yes. to me about the creation of that and what what you all are doing. Thank you for asking. Exhale to Inhale is a nonprofit organization founded by uh, my friend and uh, the executive director, Zoe LePage. Um, it was essentially, it's kind of an amazing story. This was something that she, a project she started when she was in college. And um, after graduating, it kind of took on momentum. She reached out to me through a mutual friend who um, had thought that I might be able to offer some kind of assistance or help or whatever. Again, me kind of being like, I don't know, I've never done nonprofits, but I'll help with whatever I can. And um, I was very 
moved by the mission, which is to um, bring the healing practices of yoga to survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. I knew the I was a living product of the healing powers of yoga. And so this mission was something that I felt very strongly resonated with me. Um, and so that was about, um, five years ago. Um, we just had our five year anniversary in October as a nonprofit. Um, and it's grown, you know, over the last five years, we, um, essentially, uh, have teachers that go into different shelters in um, New York City, and we also have presence in LA, and um, offer trauma-sensitive yoga, which is, you know, a more um, refined practice based on the studies of um, David Emerson um, and the Justice Resource Institute, which is more of sort of a clinical practice of uh of yoga looking at what are the different triggers what are the different um what what are different needs that survivors of trauma have to make them feel safe in their bodies what can we do to help them to feel safe in their bodies what's the environment that we need to create and what is the style of teaching we need to offer them so it's more invitational language there's not this sort of like Sometimes there can be a hierarchy, right, in in the teaching where the teacher says, like, you do this and, you know, the uh, a student responds or maybe there's not as many options or variations. So this sort of invitational language language reminds the practitioners that she has a choice. Um, there's no music involved, um, often don't ask them to close their eyes, their eyes remain open, there's no touch, um, very simple breathing, very little meditation, if any. And when they teach, they're always in access to an exit. So they see that there's a door nearby, should they feel that they need to go. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and knowing what I know from how you've explained the methodologies of Ishta, do you feel that it's sort of like a necessary compromise to some of the proven techniques that you tend to use for the general population in order to get people into the door in this kind of context? Do you mean like as far as um, teaching to trauma survivors? Yeah, as far as teaching to trauma survivors and and removing some of the things that you know to be powerful, like yes. closing your eyes for meditation, for example. Yes, absolutely. And I should note that I am on the board. I'm the board chair of the organization. And I am not the of the many amazing and incredibly gifted and generous teachers that are going into the shelters to teach these populations. So I'm not necessarily in the front line doing the sure. teaching, although I have gone through the training and I'm very familiar with the methodology. Um, but yes, I would absolutely say, you know, some of the things that I would teach in a regular class to the general population might not be appropriate to the, um, to those who have been through trauma, to trauma survivors. But I would also say that, you know, having gone through and knowing what I know about trauma survivors and the fact that, you know, the statistics are one in four. So we could probably say, you could probably say, you know, coming 
that of the women that are coming into your class, there is a are handful that have had some form of trauma or sexual assault in their life. And that's kind of daunting. So I think it's really important for a lot of yoga teachers to just have that information because it's, it's a reminder of, okay, like maybe I can say something differently or maybe offer this as an option just in case, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I have no doubt in my mind that that's, that's definitely true, whether people are speaking about it mm. or not. And there's, yes. there's certainly a growing, um, consciousness around that and people are becoming more aware because the conversation is getting louder but even today you know there's still so much trauma that is buried and not talked about out of shame or guilt or some combination thereof but I think that yoga practice in a group setting or individually or however is accessible to you at the moment where you are in your healing process is always going to help you to process that. Right, exactly. I, I fully agree. And because what we're doing is we're enabling people to feel a connection in their bodies, to feel present in their bodies. And that in itself is really empowering. Absolutely. Um, Sarah, can you take us to one um, recent thing that's really exciting you something that you is either going on now or something that you're looking forward to as it relates to um, exhale to inhale or ishta or any of the other projects that you have going on i know that you're also the teacher of deepak chopra which is super cool (laughs) Um, yeah anything that you're working on that you'd, you'd like to share with us um Gosh, there's, yeah, there's a, there's a few things going on. Um, certainly we have our retreat coming up in April, which is always an amazing experience to, you know, share the practice in a, in a really immersive way, um, with people who are really dedicated. Um, so I would say that is, that is exciting. Um, and I do, I have, I do have a book that I'm working on, um, but I am a little bit apprehensive to share because I don't know exactly when it's going to come out, but, um, I'm, I am in the process of, of writing and getting more in touch with my writing, um, which is something I really enjoy. And, uh, I'm excited about sharing that. And of course I always love, love teaching with Deepak. There's always some fun things um, going on there. And, and he's just such a, um, a beacon of, of wisdom and light and just like Shakti that, uh, that's always just really, yeah. Moving. Are you ever, were you intimidated to, to teach him yoga as someone who is such a beacon and seen as a teacher to so many? Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Um, I didn't, you know, I, we've, I guess I've been teaching him now for, um, almost five years. So I guess it was summer of 2014 that I started teaching him. And I remember, you know, his assistant had reached out, you know, Deepak Chopra has just moved into your neighborhood and would like, you know, to have private yoga classes. Um, we had had a mutual friend who had recommended him to Ishta and to study with me. And, 
I was like, this isn't real. This isn't <laughs> fishing, fishing scam. <laughs> Who is this fluke? You know, I'm not going to respond. And, but after some little, you know, investigation, I realized, in fact, yeah, it was true. And he did move in like two doors away from our studio. And, um, I thought to myself, well, how am I, yeah, what am I going to teach this person? And that's off actually where I started to use the word share in start of teach, because when I thought of it in that way, it was less intimidating for me. Like I just have something that I have learned that has really affected me that I would like to share with you. And you can see if it has the same results for you. Right. And, and, it, and it did, he, he felt, I think he's gone through a, a pretty, great transformation. I don't, I wouldn't attest it completely to the yoga, but I think that that was an added pillar for him and his, you know, pursuit of wellness and reversing the aging process, which he has definitely done. <laughs> Very cool. Very yeah. Cool. And, and another thing with the shift from teaching to sharing is that it kind of takes it out of a unilateral direction. And yeah. I certainly feel that, you know, in, in any teacher student relationship, and I've obviously been on both sides of that, right. Um, there's always a give and take and you always learn from one another. What are, what are some of the things that you've learned from him? He is extremely disciplined. Um, so definitely discipline. Um, definitely. I never see him get um, discouraged about anything. And I know he has projects going. I mean, this five years now, we've been, so think of all the projects he's done in five years and books so he's written. And, and it's, it doesn't take him over and he doesn't invest an extraneous amount of energy or emotion in it. And I think that's how he's been able to maintain and sustain the level of energy that he has because he doesn't overly express or expel energy in areas that are not of his, to his highest good. Mm -hmm. um, he's very, I, I think of it as, yeah, investment. He's very conscious about how he invests his time, his energy and his knowledge. Um, yeah. And, and I think he gets a huge return in it. And I, I never, I don't really try to, you know, when we, and, and it's also very clear to me that, that when we meet, it's really his time. It's his time to, you know, connect with his body, to feel a sense of where he doesn't have any other external responsibilities. And I really take that seriously and, and to heart. And I do my best to uphold the integrity of that for him. Yeah. Yeah. You could say that he's, kind of like a master of, of brahmacharya, like preservation mm, of life force yeah. energy. Yeah. And, and that absolutely. comes, that comes from a very, um, disciplined focus. Yeah. So I'm not surprised to hear that, you know, when you have your time together, he is on it. He's on yeah. point. Yes. A hundred percent. Well, hopefully yeah. that you can, um, take some of his inspiration in and writing your book. Will this be your first one? It will be my first one. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And I do, I do, I take, you know, it's funny because yes, this is a, you know, sharing that I, I offer to him with the teachings, but I have learned so much just being in his presence, um, and listening to him talk. And even though he will not, you know, 
go off and on a dissertation of, you know, consciousness and dark matter when we're in a yoga session. But I, I've been present to many of his talks. And again, just like in that transmission of energy, there is so much that goes beyond words, right? When you're in the presence of somebody who, you know, like you said, has, has this practice of brahmacharya or being able to really steer energy in an intentional way that has given me so much. So yeah, definitely the the book will have some, um, inspiration from that. Right. Right. Apart from getting your message out on the podcast, what are you doing today to live your Dharma? Mm. So today, I'm actually right after this, I'm going to um, teach, share meditation in um, up at the Estee Lauder offices. I get to teach there uh, weekly, and that's really um, elevating for me to be able to share the practice in a corporate setting um, to people who sort of need to be able to find a pause in their day um, and feel a sense of quiet and steadiness. Um, and then after that, I, I have a meeting with, uh, Zoe and the Lululemon girls for exhale to inhale. And I will be, um, further discussing how we can share the mission of, um, expanding the awareness and presence of this organization to women, people who, who are in need of it. So yeah. And, I, of course, will have some time at my studio um, to further work on some business. So it's a nice rounding of everything. Yeah, sounds like it. Mm. Well, now seems like the perfect time to wind down with the final section of the interview. This is called the Prana Round. And I'm going to ask okay. you six rapid-fire questions and okay. ask you to answer a minimum one word, maximum one sentence. Okay. okay. All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> In one word, why do you practice yoga? Peace. What is your favorite yoga pose and why? Tadasana, because it allows me to feel integrated in my body, mind, and spirit. Beautiful. What is the single best cue or piece of advice that you've ever received from a yoga teacher? Relax your jaw. I love that one. And I need to remind myself <laughs> that often. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Recommend one book, either modern or ancient, for our audience. Just Apart one. from your own, of course. Okay. Um, <laughs> Tantra of the Yoga Sutras by Alan Finger. Okay. <laughs> Is yoga for everyone? Yes. Last question, how can our audience get in touch with you and how can we support you in your dharma? You can find me at saraplatfinger.com or ishtayoga.com and on Instagram and Twitter, I'm splatfinger. On Facebook, I'm saraplatfinger. And you can support my dharma by dedicating yourself daily to your own form of elevating your consciousness, practice, whatever it is that brings you peace of mind to yourself. 
great. And this conversation has helped me with my practice to elevate my consciousness. I'm sure that all of our listeners have benefited from it as well. So thank you, Sarah, so much for spending some time with me. And I wish you a lovely rest of your day. Thank you so much. Hey, Dharma Talk community. If you enjoyed this podcast and you haven't done so already, please hit the subscribe button right now. And if you'd like to show your support even more, leave me an honest review on iTunes or whatever podcast directory you listen on. You can also make a financial contribution to keep the show up and running, a donation at henrywins.com. And remember, I'm here to serve you. So if you have any questions or comments or ideas, you can always reach me on Instagram at henrywins. Otherwise, I'll speak to you next week. Keep living your dharma.